So this is the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. We're coming to you uh, almost at the end of the where we've had the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Uh, my name is Adam Wheeler and I'm joined again by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. Our other colleague Steve English is busy on World Superbike duty so he won't be joining us this evening. But guys we're going to talk about uh, Moto2 and Moto3 uh, from the UK. Uh, first of all, let's just have a quick um, recap of the results um, from Silverstone. In Emoto 2, we saw Remy Gardner come back to win uh, an impressive duel with Marco Bezzecchi in second place and Jorge Navarro making a breakthrough on the Bosco Scuro chassis to finish in third. I think that might be his first podium finish of the season. Uh, is Neil going to nod at me over Zoom? He is. There we go. Thanks, Neil. In Emoto 3, of course, uh, as identified in our regular weekly show, uh, Romano Fonati's complete domination of the weekend resulting in his second victory. No, maybe first victory of the season in Moto3 on Oscar Varna, the yep, first victory, the second of his career on the white bike. Uh, he was just ahead of Nicolo Antonelli, an impressive ride from uh, the fellow 25-year-old Italian um, after breaking, I think it's his left wrist, uh, fairly recently. And then in third place, we had Dennis Foggia for an all-Italian trio in Moto3. Uh, guys, first of all, I want to ask, uh, Dave, you're waving at me. Yeah. Have I yeah, said something yeah. wrong? No, 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 no. No, I just thought of something. The Fanatinator. <laughs> right um we usually we finished a podcast towards the end of the show dave not right at the beginning with a, a, a strand of terrible humor but um i will come back to you just you know so we can erase that from our memory and what was your particular moment of the weekend from moto 2 and moto 3 was there anything that stood out for you uh just raul fernandez seems to be struggling you know he just didn't really seem to be anywhere um I mean, it, it, it qualifies on the second row, which, okay, not so bad. But he just, the, from the start of the race, he just went backwards. He just, you know, the, 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 he had no fight at all. And it was a reminder that he was a rookie. Um, I mean, he's had a remarkable season, just an astonishing season. Um, but he's still a rookie and things don't always go his way. That was, that was, it was just very, very um, interesting. And then he, and then he you know, ends up crashing out. So, yeah, it, just the fact that he had such a miserable, really quite a miserable couple of days. That was the second DNF of the year, I believe. Did he also crash in, was it uh, Saxon Ring, Germany? Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's some valuable points gone there. I think Raul was running in eighth place during the race, or he was just inside the top ten. So he would have picked up something and kept the gap to Remy Gardner reasonably close. But uh, like you say, Dave, uh, you know, a disappointing result, certainly for his aspirations of, you know, winning the championship in his first year. Neil, uh, what was it that kind of caught your eye? Um, I think um, going against what David said, it would probably be Remy Gardner's performance. I think it was uh, probably the best we've seen uh, from Remy. Maybe uh, Portimao at the end of last year was, was comparable. Um, but I think this was maybe his strongest performance when you consider what had happened in the previous race in Austria, he came to Silverstone under pressure, I think. Um, Raul had really taken a big chunk out of his championship lead last time out. Um, and uh, there was just something about the way he went at his business. He wasn't posting fastest times in free practice, but uh, he was working towards the race. And he, we saw from the very start of the race that he was there to, to basically win it. Um, and there was a lot on the line. And he saw um, on the big screen when... Um, when Ralph Fernandez crashed out, so he knew that his, his chief adversary in the championship was going to score no points. Um, 
and yet he still put it all on the line in the, the last couple of laps. And uh, yeah, you have to say, I think he's got <clears throat> 44 points in hand now. It's a, a real, real big step um, towards uh, taking the Moto2 Championship this year. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about Remy in a minute. Um, for me, my moment of the weekend was, uh, again, looking at Moto2, uh, Sam Lowe's. Uh, I think it was the third time he's just missed out on the podium in the last four or five races. Uh, and Assen, I think he was close. Well, it was fourth, certainly. Um, and in one of the Austrian races as well. But uh, for, you know, for, for the British fans, I thought it was, um, you know, encouraging to see uh, a native rider so close going for glory there and just a little bit unlucky with uh, to miss out, I think, by three tenths of a second from Jorge Navarro at the end. Yeah, exactly. And what was great about Sam's performance, I think, was uh, he had a crash in morning warm up. Um, and then the next time we really saw him was like the first lap and he basically made a move for the lead into the Maggots Beckett's complex. Big, fast section and requires real confidence and real bravery um and sam had somehow managed to just completely push what happened in the morning out of his mind and uh, yeah was was really impressive at the start of that race and you know just missed out by as you said adam a, a couple of tenths of a second it's been uh, that way i think you know as you said a few times recently but yeah, he's been he's been there. He's been competitive. It's just hasn't quite had that something at the end of the race for the podium. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, he got off to a fantastic start and looked really, really strong, but just lost out. I think as uh, uh, Bezeki and Gardner grew, he he couldn't make that uh, the, the the step to go with them. And um, uh, yeah, I mean the, the battle between Gardner and, and Bezeki turned out to be absolutely fantastic, and and, and Lowe's just couldn't quite follow it. It was, um, but it was still great to see him actually leading and uh, uh, leading the first few laps and, and being in the battle. Now, you touched on the fact that Remy Gardner, you know, has strengthened his bid for the World Championship, 44 points. I mean, that's six away from being two races or having a margin of two races and there's only seven rounds to go. I mean, this was a, a, a very significant victory. I think it was his fourth of the year, uh, you know, because, again, time is running out, but also he bounced back from some, you know, wavering form in Austria. Yeah, exactly. Um and, you know, I think we, we were looking back at Austria and talking about it as if it was a, a bit of a disaster. And it was, in a, in a sense, because Fernandez won that second race in Austria. Um, but still, Remy came home seventh. You know, I remember it would only have been two years ago where seventh would have definitely counted as a really good result from him. Um, it just goes to show you how far he has come in the last, in the last year, really. Um, and uh, the thing is about Remy at the moment is he's just so consistent um, and he's, he's not really making mistakes. He's not crashing. Um, it's just hard to see him faltering at, at this point in time, um, especially when there's tracks. It was kind of this time last year where he really started building up that momentum, which he carried through into the start of this season. Um, you know, at tracks like Aragon, um, Portimao, Valencia. Um, so I think it is, yeah, it's looking really good for him. And it was the, the, the perfect kind of answer. Um, he was sort of giving it the, the usual, take things step by step and we won't get too carried away. I could be on the floor next weekend, Raul could win and we're back to square one essentially. But um, yeah, you definitely had the impression that uh, this was a, a major milestone in uh, his march toward the title. Dave, I just pulled up the points here for Moto2 and Marco Bezecchi's in third place. Uh, I think he's 52 points off. Um, do you think that's too much? I mean, is it is it a bridge too far now for the Italian? Yeah, I mean, there are officially uh, there are officially seven rounds to go. Um, but, I mean, the, one of those rounds is a TBC. 
so I think we're going to end up with six rounds uh, at, at the end and six races, 52 points, six races is um, a lot. It really requires Remy to have, um, if not a if not a DNF, if not at least one DNF, then a lot of really bad races. And Remy's just been so... Um, calm and unflustered. He just, uh, you know, he just hasn't looked at, you know, he, he's just looked so composed. You can't see him making really, really big mistakes. Even when he has bad, uh, you know, when, he's, when he has sort of like bad bad weeks, uh, he's still, what is he, seventh, eighth, that sort of thing. He's doing ex exactly what we keep saying about, you know, you win your championships on the bad days. He just doesn't have bad days. Or when he has bad days, they're just, you know, they're, they're entirely acceptable. They're perfectly they're, they're perfectly good results. Um, so he would, he would really have to start crashing for, uh, for um, certainly Bezeki. And I think also Fernandez. I mean, I think Fernandez also. Just also because, you know, he is a rookie. Fernandez is a rookie. He's going to make mistakes. Um, there are going to be tracks where are really difficult. I, I suppose a bit like Silverstone. There's going to be tracks which are suddenly a lot more difficult than you would expect them to be on a uh, on a Moto2 bike compared to the way that you learned them on a Moto3 bike. We know that this is like a difficult track for relative rookies and I think Fernandez had only been to Silverstone once as a Moto3 rider so he was battling against quite a bit of an experience at this track um, but I thought it was interesting just how confident he sounded on Friday he topped FP2 and he came out and was giving it the, the big ones um, on Friday evening saying I'm in the best form of my career I've never felt this strong mentally or physically um, I really think that uh, the Austria race was a, a switch in my brain which I flicked and now I, I really know that I can fight for this title right until the end and it was almost as if he was trying to put just a little bit of pressure on Remy um, and, and clearly Remy just was completely unmoved um, and you know wasn't doing anything silly was just working towards the race and when we got to Saturday Marco Bezecchi had been studying the timesheets and the, and the the analysis and said, Remy's the man i got to beat. And I went and looked at the the times from FP3 and I thought, yeah, he's definitely right. You know, so Remy wasn't getting flustered at all. He was just working methodically and as he kind of has been. Um, and I thought that was quite impressive. It's definitely a measure of uh, Gardner's progress that he's, you know, developed this consistency. Uh, you know, it's something that we certainly wouldn't have said was an attribute for the last two or three years where he's had the speed to win races, certainly to take podiums, but then also you know, a tendency to, to crash out as well. So it's a fantastic achievement, I think, um, you know, by the young rider and also for the Rebel KTM your team. Uh, Neil, perhaps their last world champion was Joan Zarco. Uh, Got to be five or six years ago now, more than that. So it's been quite a while. In Moto2, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you consider the domination they've got in the class, maybe it's also a little surprising and shows how, you know, uh, crews in Moto2 can really find small measures to make the things click. Going back to Marco Bezzecchi, um I, I can't remember off the top of my head. He's tipped to go to MotoGP next year. Is he actually confirmed to be the fourth writer to, to move up next year? He, he's not confirmed. Um, uh, we're all expecting him to be the second rider alongside um, uh, Luca Marini in the VR46 team. Uh, but there is the little uh, matter of the illusory sponsor and uh, the whole Saudi deal not necessarily actually existing. Um, so I think they're waiting to get all that sorted out before before actually confirming it. But, uh, I mean, it would be shocking if he wasn't on the VR46 bike next year. 
Talking of murky team arrangements, um, some recent news for uh, Moto2 was, of course, John McPhee bouncing out of uh, Moto3 and, you know, into the class for the next round. I mean, there's all sorts of r- rumors and, and movements going on with the Petronas Sprinter operation, of course, ceasing operation at the end of the year. So I guess it doesn't really matter who, who rides what and where. But, uh, you know, what's what's our opinion on McPhee moving up? I mean, if we compare him to, say, Jake Dixon taking the step into MotoGP, is McPhee likely to be just as swallowed by the challenge? Yes. I think it... <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, you're jumping onto a bike which... Uh, I mean, the 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 only slightly easier thing is that you're you're on Dunlop tyres, but the Dunlop tyres are very different. The step from Moto3 to Moto2 is really big, really big. It's probably the biggest step in racing at the moment um, because it's such a... it's the, the bike is so much heavier. It's so much more powerful. Uh, the tyres are so much just fatter um the, the riding style is so totally different um and jumping on a race weekend i mean it's going to be i suppose fun but it's not going to be competitive i mean uh, well if john if it, you know if if john was in the top 10 um if he was even in the top 15 i think would be absolutely amazed and not just because uh, uh, that's got nothing to do with with John McPhee's talent. Um, it, it's just that the step is so difficult. It, and Raul, I mean, Raul Fernandez is obviously the comparison, but Raul Fernandez had a whole bunch of testing uh, before he actually got to do any competing. So he had so much more time on the bike, and also he had time uh, on his own. Uh, to calmly over the course of a day to calmly go through and uh, and work and uh, sort of you know learn slowly learn not what is it three 45 minute sessions which is not conducive or 40 minutes i think they are for uh for moto too so yeah there's just no time to learn the bike would you say perhaps, Neil, that, you know, John's situation is similar to Jake's and that he's offered an opportunity, you know, he's looking to move up to Moto2 anyway, so why not take the chance to learn something about it, you know, because his Moto3 campaign is is largely, I, I don't know, what's the word, forgettable? Or, you know, yeah. there's not a great deal of worth to it anymore. Yeah, it's been a it's been a, a, a tough year for John. It's been forgettable, sadly. It should have been the year where he was up fighting for the championship again, but it just hasn't materialized. Obviously, a bit of bad luck and um, crew chief getting replaced um, and some issues with the team. I mean, it's just uh, yeah, it's not it's not been ideal. Um, but I think you know John has long made it known that uh, he's wanted to move up to Model Two. I think it was back in 2019 that he was saying 2020 was the year he was going to step up that didn't happen and then he wanted to step up at the end of 2020 and he was quite annoyed that that didn't happen again um so i think it's a way of the team maybe saying okay here's a chance for where you can put yourself in the shop window for any prospective model two teams for next year um and uh, and show what you're worth i think mcphee tested patronus model two bike a f- two years ago in catalonia and from what i heard was was pretty fast by the end of the day um but uh, yeah as dave says it's a it's a massive step forward and it's just the the sheer it's just a lack of time um yeah three three sessions essentially um to, to basically get up to speed um and around a, a quite a long very technical track like aragon that's uh, that's no easy feat 
Just one more piece of news, guys. Well, a pretty big one to come out of Silverstone, um, as we discussed, I think was on the note show across the weekend. Uh, Triumph committing to another three years of being the engine supplier to the class. Uh, also admitting they're going to look in, well, they're looking for performance upgrades uh, from that engine package uh, to maybe try and increase some of the complexity of Moto2 for riders looking to make that step up. I mean, that, you know, uh, Carlos Espoleta talking on behalf of Dorna said that was also one of the goals. Uh, you know, having Triumph for another three years and keeping the basic sort of footprint for the for Moto Two is is that a good move? Um, I, I guess shaking things up is not terribly necessary at this point. No, I don't think so. I think it's uh, I think it's a good move for for everyone involved. I think the Triumph involvement in Moto Two has been a success uh, since they came in in two thousand and nineteen. I mean, the racing has been good. Um, it, I think it's been a bit more interesting and it was with um with, with, with moto 2 in the past with the, the honda cbr 600 engines um they've been faster i think there was something like 34 new lap records um have been set in the subsequent time since triumph came in and then i mean there's no definitive way to prove this but the success of brad binder last year and jorge martin this year suggests that they are the Triumph engines are preparing Moto2 riders better for the step up to MotoGP, and those were all things that Triumph wanted to wanted to do and wanted to consider um, whenever they were coming into into the class. Um, and yeah, I spoke to um, Triumph's Steve Sargent over the weekend, um, and uh, as you'll hear, uh, he told us that they they do want to innovate, continue innovating. I think next year they're planning on bringing a closer ratio gearbox. Um, bringing that and making that available for all the riders and the teams and also um, they're looking to reduce some of the inertia and engine mass and friction which should help to deliver more peak power so uh, yeah we can probably listen to what Steve had to say now yeah so I mean it's obviously a big weekend Steve for, for yourself and for Triumph yeah. announcing the three-year extension I heard you say yesterday that at the start of this project you wanted to uh, raise your brand profile and credibility on the world stage, also prove how reliable your, your machinery is. I mean, would you say that Triumph has lived up to that in the first kind of three years of, of its time in, in Moto2 as an engine supplier? Well, the reliability thing, I think, uh, you know, uh, as we said yesterday in the press conference, 650,000 kilometers of, you know, racing and qualifying and, uh, you know, that I think uh, kind of stands up on its own. Um, you know, no real uh, technical problems. I mean, the, the teams are happy, the riders are happy. Uh, we're probably, um, you know, it's probably met more than our expectations in many ways on, on that level. Um, you know, particularly when you see how these guys ride the bikes and how hard they push them. Um, you know, it's 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 very rare that going through a season, any of the teams in. MotoGP, Moto3 don't have some kind of issues, so right. you know, uh, yeah, definitely massively pleased on on that side of things. In terms of the impact on on the brand, uh, you know, we, we've seen a significant increase in awareness. Every, every time we put anything significant up on social media about Moto2, uh, it's got a huge following. Uh, you know, in some respects, I think you know we've said this before. It's a slightly different audience, maybe than a traditional Triumph audience. Um, so, getting that message out there to a different customer has uh, been significant for us. Um, and again, as we said yesterday, uh, last 12 months we've sold more motorcycles than Triumph's ever done in its history. Um, I know in the press conference, Carlos was trying to claim full credit for all of that, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, there's def there definitely is a Moto2 effect to it. Yeah. 
I mean, considering we're in a kind of COVID-affected economy, that's quite remarkable over the last year, you would say. Yeah, I think, um, you know, during during the, the crisis, there's been a lot of people who haven't been able to spend money. So pe- people who have still been earning money, uh, you know, obviously they haven't been able to spend that money on going on holidays or anything like that. So I think a lot of people have kind of come out of lockdown with a bit more money in the bank than maybe they would have done otherwise. Um, and thankfully a fair number of those have said, well, do you know what, I'm going to go out and buy a motorcycle. Uh, so <laughs> thanks to them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You, you were saying yesterday also that one of your um, one of your aims for getting into this was to better prepare riders for the step up to MotoGP. And I mean, we've seen uh, since they've used Triumph machinery, Brad Binder win mm. a race in his rookie season, mm. Jorge Martin win a race in MotoGP in his rookie season. It does seem that, you know, I mean, the proof's in the pudding that, that you are kind of, you've provided a package which is more of a, a kind of a challenge for guys stepping up for Moto3. Yeah, I think part of that is obviously just the, the out-and-out performance of the engine and you can see in the way that the guys are now riding a Moto2 by sliding them around the corners a little bit more, uh, using that extra powers. Watching the qualifying just now and you watch, uh, you know, you watch Navarro come through Woodcote onto the start-finish straight and, you know, the guys are drifting them in a similar fashion that you see the guys drifting them on a MotoGP bike. So I think there's definitely a part of that. Uh, The electronics package has obviously been uh, a significant difference from the, the, the previous Moto2 package. Um, and the amount of adjustment that the guys have got on the bike. Um, you know, to be fair to Magneti Morelli, I think they've brought a really good package into the championship. I mean, the, the ECU itself is effectively the same ECU as a MotoGP bike. Um, it's just that it doesn't have all of the functionality turned on that, that the MotoGP boys do, but it's got enough functionality on there, I think, to, to challenge the riders and the teams to kind of um, get their knowledge up to speed for people who are moving on into MotoGP. Yeah. You were saying yesterday in the press conference um, that what you've been developing for Model 2 has been, you could basically apply that to your production um, techniques and, and things like that. I mean, what, what do you, is there anything that stands out in particular that you've been able to see from your race development? through to the production line? I mean, obviously when we uh, came into Moto2, um, we had to develop the engine anyway. Uh, The standard road bike makes about 123 uh, PS in terms of peak power. And in Moto2, uh, we wanted to deliver something closer to 140 or 140 plus um, PS. So we had to do quite a lot of development in terms of um, making the engine breathe a little bit more freely and helping it to spin up a little bit quicker, reducing inertia. All of that is stuff that um, can be developed and adapted onto the road bikes. The good thing about Moto2 is that we're almost getting the durability testing for free. Well, it's not for free, but yeah, if you know what I mean, we don't, we're not having to go out and do our own kind of durability testing on some of the changes that we've made because we've got 32 world-class uh, riders pushing the things to the absolute limits every weekend. So, you know, if they're not breaking them, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the average customer on the road is not going to break it either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what kind of changes can we expect to see? Triumph obviously going to be engine supplier now. 2022, 23, and 24. Mm. 
you were talking yesterday about some innovations, some slight changes you might make to the, the technical package uh, yeah. for next year. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things we were conscious of when we um, agreed to extend the contract is that we don't want to stand still. So we do want to continue to innovate. We want to continue to provide a challenge to the teams and the riders. And, and also from our own perspective, you know, there's, there's certain things that we want to push on in terms of the development of the engine, again, to kind of prove off some of our ideas about how we might get more performance out of a, a tri triple. Uh, so next year we've, uh, we've gone with a closer ratio gearbox. So, I mean, obviously the engine is just incredibly torquey. Um, so the riders don't always have to be in the kind of peak revs to, to be delivering power, but um, definitely with a closer ratio gearbox, it gives the teams more options on setup. Uh, it means it's more likely that they can get the gearing optimal for more corners going around the circuit. I mean, we, we've seen over the last couple of seasons that on some circuits, some of the riders were only using four gears, for example. Uh, so but by just closing those ratios down, it, it means that the, uh, the riders are likely to probably use um, more of the gearbox. Um, and as I say, they, they can be in a more optimum gear for each of the corners. So that's, that's one of the big changes for next year. Uh, the other one, big one that we've done is uh, in the bottom end of the engine around the, the primary gear, uh, we've found opportunities to reduce inertia, so um, reduce rotating mass effectively and also reduce friction. Uh, so again, that should help the, the engine to spin up and uh, deliver a little bit more peak power. Um, but we're not, uh, we're not going to stop there, so we're not just going to do that. So. We're already working on stuff for the following season. So for 2023, uh, we've got a number of changes that we're testing on our own engine rigs at the moment. Uh, don't know exactly yet which ones of those will come to fruition, but we're, we're testing a whole raft of potential changes. And for sure, enough of those will prove to be successful that we will be delivering more power uh, in 2023. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I guess, are you in, constant uh, dialogue with with kind of teams uh, and and riders in the championship who are maybe asking you or, or making suggestions of things the ways that you can improve how, how does that kind of work uh i mean you know obviously the last year or so it's been really difficult to be in the paddock um in the in the first year where we had more opportunity to be in the paddock it was easy to go in and speak to uh, some of the team owners um, and some of the riders about their thoughts but um, Extern Pro really have done a fabulous job for us as kind of being that that conduit between us and the teams. So um, end of every race weekend, Trevor Morris prepares a report for us. Um, we get the engine data, but Trevor also feeds back to us anything anecdotal from the teams in terms of you know so and so mentioned this, so and so mentioned that, and you know they would like to see improvements in this area if possible. And and that was really the reason behind um, the gearbox changes was, you know, a lot of the teams were saying, you know, actually we, we can't use all the gearbox at the moment with the, the spacing on the ratios. So, you know, definitely we take that on board and that does definitely feed back into the development. Okay, interesting, yeah. Um, you've obviously been pretty good at uh, some of your predictions before, Steve. Uh, I think at the, <laughs> the start of the season, you, uh, you seemed to put your money on Remy Gardner, where I think I might have said Marco Vizzecki was the guy that was yeah. going to win. Um, but it looks like it might be a two-horse race at the moment. I mean, if you, I mean, the uh, first, yeah, the first half of the season. I mean, you know, uh, 
I had some discussions with a few people about who might be Rookie of the Year, and to be honest, I got that wrong. So, uh, you know, I, I thought uh, Tony Arbolino might be the one who, who really shone. Um, but, you know, Raul Fernandez has done unbelievably well. Uh, you know, what a, what a talent that guy is. Um, quite clearly, him and Remy have had the best of the first half of the season. Uh, I'm not expecting them to have it all their own way in the second half of the season. I think some of the guys who started to get back up to speed again now. Um, obviously, Sam's been through a little bit of a difficult patch. Uh, looks like he's potentially coming back on song. Looks like he's doing well so far this weekend. Digi looks like he's coming good. Uh, Augusto Fernandez looks like he's coming good. So. I'm expecting a few more guys to be battling it out of the front, but you know they've got quite a, a pointless uh, kind of deficit to claw back at the moment. Um, you know, Zeki has been going well the last few rounds, but you know he struggled a little bit today. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. And, and Navarro has been in super impressive form today, but uh, you know how long he can keep that going, we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. And just one final thing, Steve. I mean, um, from your point of view, watching Model Two racing and watching how things have panned out over the last three years, I mean, what kind of gives you? like someone that's integral to, to triumph what gives you the greatest sort of satisfaction is it seeing the reliability is it seeing lab records broken is it seeing good racing or is it just a bit of a, a combination of of all of those things i mean in terms of the um the demonstration of uh, our capability as a brand i think it's the reliability and obviously the, the lab records and that kind of thing but you know, on, on a personal level, I love racing. So close racing is always something that, you know, I, I, I love to see that. And, uh, you know, obviously we've seen a few Moto2 races have got a little bit strung out. Uh, I know Dunlop this weekend have brought uh, a softer uh, tire compound. I think that could be interesting because what some of the riders are saying is that they don't feel confident, confident enough at the start of the race to push. The riders who are confident to push will tend to get a little bit of a gap. And then everybody's running at a very similar pace. So it's hard, once that gap gets there, it's hard for other riders to close it back down. But hopefully, you know, if, if uh, more riders get confidence in the soft compound on the front and they can all push hard and stay together at the start of the race, I think we should see some really good racing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the championship battle to, to deliver as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice one. All right, Steve. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks very much right. for your time as always. Yeah. <laughs> So words there from uh, Steve Sargent, um, and thanks for that, Neil. He sprung that as a surprise on us, as, uh, as it was a surprise for everybody else. So uh, it's always good to have you know some uh, input direct from the top. Dave, um, your thoughts on the Triumph uh, extension, contract extension there? Yeah, it's definitely good for Moto2. Um, the, the, the thing about it is it, ha it is preparing riders much better for MotoGP, I think. Also, you know, talking to a few crew chiefs and that, the thing is... What it does is you're using electronics with the with the whole the old Honda engine. You didn't have any electronics with this one. You have some electronics. You have some very. Um, it, it's not extremely complicated, but you get to understand a little bit about tire management. You get to understand a little bit about torque maps. Um, the engine is much more torquey. Um, and uh, on a MotoGP bike, despite the fact they've got so much horsepower, they've also got so much torque that you're actually riding the bike a lot on the torque and managing the torque to uh, uh, get out of corners and, and all, all the rest of it. You've got some engine braking uh, going on as well. I think it, it it's much... Um, 
you can also see just in the step between Moto3 and Moto2 has got bigger because the step between Moto2 and MotoGP uh, has got closer. And so I think it's a it, it's a much better preparatory class. And I think if you look at the class today, um, if you look at the championship standings, then, yeah, I mean, basically the, the best riders are at the top. It's as, imp- it's as simple as that. The ones with the um, with the clearest Grand Prix experience and uh, and the best Grand Prix riders, if you like. We certainly don't lack any talk on the Paddock Pass podcast, so let's accelerate our way into Moto3. Um, we've mentioned Romano Fanati and, you know, his exemplary performance at Silverstone. Uh, guys, I mean, I, I think I voiced my opinion after the Styrian round at how refreshing it was to see a Moto3 race where there was just one or two, three riders really excelling, um, able to stand out from the pack. Um, on that occasion, of course, it was Pedro Acosta and Sergio Garcia. And those two riders this time were having a right ding-dong, but for 10th place, uh, where we saw a usual kind of Moto3 fare, but it was further down the order. Um, if we look at Romano Fernandes, 25 years old, I think he's got almost 10 years worth of experience in Moto3. Nicola Antonelli, again, 25 years old. Dennis Foggia, maybe four to five seasons experience in Moto3. It seemed like the 18 turns of Silverstone, a more technical circuit. Um, okay, it's very fast and flowing, you know, not not many heavy braking zones. Um, it seemed to reward the riders with that little bit extra nuance of, of the class and the machinery. Um, Neil, Neil, was that kind of your take? Am I, am I on the money there? Yeah, I would say so, Adam, just for a change. I would say you're on the money. Um, yeah, and you could put in Andrea Mignot as well. He obviously was, uh, he cruelly was ruled out of the uh, the victory fight, um, retired with a, a technical issue midway through that race. But yeah, it did seem that the, the more experienced names uh, were the guys that, that kind of came to the fore, whereas the, the rookies or the guys in their second year um, who didn't have any experience at Silverstone struggled. You know, it's the... It's the worst result that Acosta's had a tenth, sorry, eleventh place, um, um, and um, even guys like Garcia, who I think were only there once before, um, yeah, struggled well, back in sixteenth for him. So, uh, yeah, it was it was quite interesting to see that, and it was just it was great from my point of view to see a rider making a difference. Fanati was just sensational right from FP one, broke the lap record by I think a second, a full second on Saturday morning, just. Um, I saw uh, one of John McPhee's um, uh, mechanics actually on Twitter, uh, Stephen Bradley, writing, you know, this is just great to see a rider when he rides intelligently and fast and with talent working alone on track doing this kind of thing because it shows that it can be done. You don't have to just sit and wait around for a toe all the time. Um, so, yeah, it was great to see from Fanati. Uh, we said on the main pod, or you posed the question, uh, how many riders in Model 3 history have topped every single session uh, over a race weekend. Uh, only three riders before uh, this weekend, Adam. Really? So, in Moto3 yeah. or 125s? In Moto3, yeah. Right. So going back to 2012. And those riders um, are, are we, get, are we getting the chance to guess? Because <laughs> Neil, you're uh, well, bound to have the information up your, up your sleeve. We'll, is it we'll true be here a long time, I feel. It is oh, true, yes. Is it yeah, pretty random? Juan Juan Mir has to be one. No. No? Danny really? Kent. Vinales. Danny Kent was one, yeah. Oh, uh, good Ring, shout. 2015. Uh, Maverick, Mugello, okay. 2012. And Jorge Martin, Mugello, 2018. Wow. I mean, Martin, how many pole positions did he have in Moto3? I mean, he must 20. be the, yeah, the master. I mean, is there anybody with more poles than him? I doubt it. Not in Model 3, no. No one, no one even close, I don't think. All right, there you go. Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show is the place to be for defining statistics on the class. 
Thanks to Neil Morrison. You've earned your money, certainly. Dave, um, <laughs> Modus 3, uh, as we mentioned, there was a couple of stand. I mean, really, our claims that experience ruled the day at Silverstone was also kind of offset by Izan Guevara. I mean, a, a rookie, you know, almost getting on the podium. I mean, that was a fantastic battle we had there with, um, you know, uh, Foggia for the for the last podium place. But, uh, you know, did you enjoy this one, Dave, or do you prefer kind of the frantic uh, 10 to 11, 12 rider chase we usually see where, which means we can watch Moto3 for the first two laps, go and have a cup of tea and do something else and come back for the last two laps? Well, first of all, let me just say that I'm very disappointed that you're not uh, picking up on my Fanatinator um, uh, <laughs> nickname, which um, I think it, I'm going to try and promote as much as possible, although it's actually really tricky to keep on saying Fanatinator without um, uh, either ending up saying some uh, something like fellatio or um, or just uh, stuttering. But anyway... Uh, no, it was it, it was a it was a great race. It was also <clears throat> what you saw was that once a gap was created, it was really it was really difficult to uh, actually close it again. And it's the nature of the track. It isn't a track with long straights where you can really make up a lot of time on a uh, uh, on a slipstream. You're not really getting. Uh, sort of you don't have any really slow corners onto onto long straights and you don't have um you, you know the kind of straights which lend themselves to slipstreaming and so you you end up getting sort of natural breaks and because you've got natural breaks that's it but once you lose touch that's it it's it, it's sort of game over um you know fanati antonelli foggia um and Mino, yeah they were having they were fantastic rode really really well uh i think it, it was sort of strange that the the broadcast kept on sort of focusing on uh, acosta versus garcia which is important because it's the championship but um yeah i mean where did they where do yeah where did they finish up 16th and uh, and 11th yeah it, it's it, it doesn't re even really matter. Sure, Acosta got four more points, but it's only four points. You know, it would have been, it would have been the same if they'd have finished uh, sort of second and third. Um, so it was um, it, it was sort of a, a bit irrelevant, really. But um, they, you know, they both started from so far back that you're always going to end up at a track where breaks can happen, uh, where you can get a break between groups. Uh, then if you are that far back, that's when qualifying certain, suddenly does make a difference. A track like Qatar with such a long straight that you can just make up time in the slipstream uh, and also where you've got a group at the front battling because that's the other thing. Like, you know, Fanasi's pace was phenomenal um, throughout the race because he didn't have to fight anyone. You know, there was it, it was him and Antonelli um, and they weren't really battling. They were uh, they were racing. Um and that means that they're going really fast and there's no chance of actually catching up either. So it it, it still really does matter where you qualify uh, at, cer at certain tracks. At a track where slipstreaming is less of a factor, then all of a sudden you really do have to sort of like be a bit concentrated and and and, and know what you're doing, being be focused uh, and understand what you're doing. And I think that's um, perhaps Acosta and Garcia got, too caught up with each other as well instead of sort of like thinking uh, thinking about the race i mean acosta was fortunate that garcia you know didn't pick up any points from the weekend dave but i mean it still looks very much like his championship to lose doesn't it 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yes, yes. Yeah. He, he still has a very comfortable lead in the championship. Um, I mean, Fanati, if Fanati has another couple of races like this, uh, the, then it might get a bit different. But I don't, I, I think we've got some races um, uh, coming up where, which are, where the field is going to be closer. Um, and also, you know, we're going to Aragon, and Aragon is going to be a good pl- a, a good track for Acosta because he's because he's raced there so often. So, I, and also for for Garcia. So, I think it's um, uh, I think we're all it's going to be a little bit it's going to be a little bit closer. Well, just while you were imparting your wisdom, Dave, I, I looked up the the list the list of previous winners in Moto Three in Aragon, and Jaume Masia uh, did the double. Uh, last season you know but riding the honda of course uh pedro acosta's teammate on the ktm so i wonder what kind of say he'll have when we get to motorland and um you know if we go all the way back to 2014 then romano Fanati was also a winner at aragon <laughs> and then let's not forget that he also posted husqvarna's first victory i think in the modern era last year in Mizano. so a couple of strong tracks coming up for the italian uh yeah. and, and texas uh, Fanati's always brilliant to texas yeah. so Another kind of fast-flowing circuit, really, maybe kind of in the Silverstone mold, you could say. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Acosta, I mean, is it, he's expected to be announced to be jumping into Moto2 in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, would news like that kind of ease the pressure of bringing home the Moto3 title, knowing he's got everything sorted for a new challenge next year? Or do you think, you know, he would have maybe benefited from still having another chance to wrap it all up? I mean, he's, has he, or at the age of sixteen or seventeen, I think he is now. Has he, has he actually outgrown the cross already? I wouldn't say he's outgrown it, um, but I would say he's physically growing. Um, I mean, he's quite a tall lad. I don't have the exact height um, at my disposal just now, but he certainly, um, yeah. When you see him around the paddock, he, he strikes you as someone that's a little older than seventeen for sure, um, a little stocky and and tall. Um, and obviously, as we know, at that age, you're just you know gaining centimeters and inches uh you know in, in a very short space of time and i think he's proved this year that he's got the he's done model three he's, he's kind of mastered it okay i'm saying it after a tough weekend in silverstone but generally um he's been he's been the, the class of this year um you know i don't think it's going to be all his own way until the the final race um but yeah i think uh for ktm it's a bit of a no-brainer especially as they've got two seats in akiyaro's team to fill yeah, I think he has. Um, he would learn more from a bad year in Moto Two than another good year in Moto Three. Um, uh, uh, he could easily stay in Moto Three. Um, you know, try to win another championship, uh, and and he would improve just by being there. But he's not going to learn that much. I think he'd be much better off making the jump, trying to figure out, taking a year to figure out Moto. I mean, you know, maybe he is. Uh, as phenomenal as Raul Fernandez, uh, but maybe he, you know, actually needs some time to adapt. But either way, it gives him more time uh, uh, to adapt and to prepare. So yeah, it's uh, it's not that I think he's outgrown Moto Three. I just think that um, he has more to gain by going to Moto Two. Also, when you look at some of the things he's been doing training-wise away from the Grand Prix paddock, it's like he's already got that in mind. He was training with Jack Miller just before the summer break. Um, and uh, I think over the summer break, he was riding an R1 around um, some tracks in Spain, um, which is a considerable jump up from Moto3. So you have to imagine that he's, with that big bike training, he's already thinking about uh, the, the possible step up. And a couple of, uh, I mean, I, I snatched a quick word with Remy Gardner in, in the, the paddock in Silverstone, and he said that Pedro Costa is actually going to stay with him um, at his base in Sieges for a couple of days this week. So those two are working together. 
um, you know, just scary talent all around, really. But, um, you know, I, but when you look at Moda 2 nil or David, it, it can be a little bit of a graveyard. I mean, you know, what's happened? We haven't seen anything from Lorenzo de la Porta. Um, you know, Albert Arenas has also struggled. Tony Arbolino. Uh, we've only really seen like small flashes. Um, you know, Ayagura has had a fan, you know, uh, you can't say it's out, had an outstanding debut attempt at Moda 2, but he has, again, shown potential there. Uh, it seems to be a place where you, it's difficult to hit the ground running. I would agree with that. I mean, it's definitely, uh, again, the step from Moto3 to Moto2 is huge. It's just really, really huge. And you, it's a completely different mindset. You have to completely change the way that you approach the race. You have to, uh, I mean, so much of Moto3, uh, to the detriment of the class, uh, is is you know slipstreaming is is being uh, getting in the draft behind someone and and using uh, using that and motor two is much more about uh, you know tire management race management riding on your own and so you have to go out and and um, uh, riders want to follow other riders to learn so they'll go out and follow another rider to actually make the lap time to to, to be fast to understand what the bike is capable of but then they have to step away and then spend time working on their own but that's really difficult um and it can be quite demoralizing if you can't if you're not getting the lap times quickly um so it, it takes a lot of sort of discipline and uh, yeah, it's easy to get demoralized. Uh, also, just because it is still quite a close, um, uh, quite a close class, especially in terms of qualifying. And if you find yourself sort of qualifying in 16th, 20th, and two, three tenths is enough to drop you three or four rows. Uh, then life gets really, really difficult. You get held up and then you lose touch and the people at the front are away. Um, so, yeah, it, it takes sort of dedication, focus, uh, and, and just sort of a bit of you have to you know knuckle down and do, uh, put in the hard yards before you actually get anywhere. Um, but it's worth it. It, it, it. That pays off in the end, but it's really difficult to do. We'd just like to, before we move on, uh, Give a bit of a shout out to Nico Antonelli. Broke the third and fourth metacarpal in his right hand in the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, was originally aiming to come back at Misano, um, but uh, decided not to get the bone the bones uh, operated on. Uh, try and let it heal naturally, and thought he'd make a bit of a push here uh, to come back. Um, yeah, and I mean that second place was pretty remarkable when you consider he's riding the two broken bones in his right hand. Um, that was impressive, and also Dennis Foggia as well. Um, I mean. Most of the the start of this year, I've been quite hard on Foggy mainly because I picked him as one of my title favourites, and um, he just wasn't delivering. But in the last, what the last five uh, races, in fact, the last seven races, he's been on the podium five times. Um, and I think it's quite clear for everyone to see now that the Honda is at a bit of a disadvantage to the KTM's, Husqvarna's, and, and Gas Gas's. But Foggy has been consistently the fastest Honda in the last couple of weeks. Um, and while we're at it, he's Angavara. He was a rookie. Um, we saw the struggles of uh, we saw the struggles of Acosta and other talented uh, rookies at this uh, track. But Izan was there on his first trip, nearly on the podium for the first time. I think um, I think he's a guy that we're going to be seeing a lot more of at the front in races to come. We've certainly seen some team strife as well with Foggia and the Leopard set up uh, some inventive um, team communication coming out there when it comes to uh, the Italian and his his entourage or his family setup. So. 
But guys, uh, Dave, Neil, thanks ever so much for joining us. We're going to pull out of the toe of the Paddock Pass podcast with this follow-up show. Um, and as we're fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing, that's particularly easy to break the slipstream and power onwards. Uh, please join us again next week for our regular show. And uh, we'll be tackling some of the latest subjects before everybody moves on to Motorland Aragon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Those segues were so smooth, Ad. <laughs> Fuck me, sideways. Must have been an Aperol spritz, though. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you've been drinking, but it's uh, but keep it up.